Good morning, FCF Church. Uh, good to be with you this morning. Continuing in our series called Acing the Tests, and I know the notion of tests sometimes tenses uh, any of us up as we have memories from our past. But these are not tests uh, for trial or failure, but the scripture definitely teaches that our God, our Creator, the lover of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that designed us and made us for Himself in His own image, that in this life He takes us through some tryings or trials and testings, but they are meant to be developmental. They are not fail-pass sort of tests. Now I'm going to take you somewhere today that, that the likelihood is you have never gone before, and I don't know that I've ever heard anybody go in this particular place before in a, in a church message period. Having said that, perhaps someone has. So. I'm going to start a conversation with you, and I hope that you'll mentally take this journey with me. But the test that we're going to look at today, we're going to call it the devotion test. Tuck that away, we'll come back to it. But let's start by asking ourselves, what is on your treasure list? What might be on my treasure list? My supposition is that every human being has kind of a treasure list. We have some things that we value very, very highly. Usually on these treasure lists are people. Uh, it's the people we love, it's the people we're related to, it's the people we interact with mostly. So on your treasure list are usually people, but there's other things that are usually on the list too. And they may be things, they may be possessions, they may be experiences, they may be certain commodities. It could be any number of things, but these are things that we prize. They are on our treasure list kind of get a feel for what might be on your treasure list. And I know you don't, you don't come prepared on a Sunday morning with your mind ready to list out things. But I hope that the truth of this message will allow you to take this journey later on. Now, on our treasure list, more than often, some of us have what I call non-negotiable items. Uh, we, we have places where we have a, a kind of a hidden hands-off sign where not even God, not even Christ our Creator, is allowed to interfere. These are so uh, treasured by ourselves. They, these are our unique possessions. These are our unique experiences. They're hands off to God. They're non-negotiable. Try to consider if you might have some of those, because here's the thing. If you and I, knowingly or unknowingly, have some areas in our life on our treasure list where they're hands-off, even to God, they're non-negotiable, God can't talk to us at all about these items or these experiences, then they create something, and this is where the message is going to be unusual today, they create something that I'm calling the secret dread. I first came across the secret dread many, many years ago when I would listen to conversations with people and they would tell me uh, their journey in the process of coming to put their trust in Christ and become His follower. And the storyline I often heard repeated was kind of like this. It would say, you know, for many, many years I resisted Christ. I didn't want anything to do with Him because I just knew He was going to you know, throw me in the middle of some jungle and just make me spend my life in some jungle somewhere doing something I never wanted to do. And when I would hear this, I would always feel kind of confused. But I'd hear this same storyline in various different ways that, oh, I didn't want to put my trust in Christ. I didn't want to become His follower because I, I felt like He was going to ask me to do something I didn't want to do. He was going to demand something of me that I didn't want to give. He was going to demand a sacrifice. And I'd hear these stories. And this concept of the secret dread started to become more powerful in my own mind. 
on your treasure list, on my treasure list, if we have areas, if we have things that are non-negotiable, hands off even to God, then they set us up for the secret dread. Now, let me give you an idea of what I mean by secret dread. I want to ask you, you know, a couple questions, and I jotted these down because I didn't want to uh, be unclear about this. To help you focus in on what I mean by the secret dread, what requ request, what request do you hope God will never make of you? What loss, what loss are you hoping God will never ask you to accept? Let me repeat those. What, what, what request do you hope God will never make of you? What loss do you hope God will never ask you to accept? These are the, the subject that put us in this area of secret dread. Now we're going to look at the life of a man named Abraham, and he's uh, extremely important in Scripture. He's not just an Old Testament character, but he's repeated uh, again and again as a model for what it means to truly be reconciled to God, to truly come back to God, our Creator, Christ, and trust. Abraham is always the model. God always points at Abraham and says, if you want to know the kind of relationship I built you humans for, the kind of relationship that will now bring my mercy, my forgiveness, my gift of eternal life into your life, it is the kind of trust, it is the kind of faith that Abraham established with me. And so Abraham is a very important figure. But we're going to look at a portion of Abraham's life that looks on the surface very, very much like Abraham is being forced to confront his secret dread. It's, it's that, that thing, it's that, that something, that someone that we don't want God ever to talk to us about, ever to modify, ever to require anything, ever to make a demand. Most importantly, we don't ever want God to ask us to sacrifice whatever it might be. So I'm going to take you now to Genesis chapter 22 in the Old Testament, and I'm going to try to just read you a story concerning Abraham. Now, I'm going to give you this much context. When we read this story in Genesis 22, Abraham has been a follower of God. He has, because of his trust in God, been following him for probably 40 to 50 years. Please tuck that away. This was not a man inexperienced with God. This was a man that had 40 to 50 years of experience of trusting God, doing what he says, obeying his word, obeying his will, and finding God to be trustworthy. All right, here's the story. It says, sometime later, God tested, there's our term, tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Consider the shock of hearing these words. Verse 3, Early the next morning, Abraham got up and he loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for, for the burnt offerings, he set out, for, excuse me, for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back. Notice Abraham's confidence. We will worship and then we will come back. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. Keep that in mind. 
and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now, mind you, they're, they're climbing up a mountain, Mount Moriah. All this wood is on the back of Isaac, verse 9. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear, the term means revere, I know that you fear, you revere God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and he took the ram, and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, The Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. So, there's the story, and it's, it's a shocking story, and I'm going to show you just how shocking it is. And I'm going to suggest to you that this looks like a story of a human being that was taken by God so that he would face his secret dread. That's what it looks like, at least on the surface. You say, Randy, why would this be his secret dread? Well, obviously for anyone to be asked by God to sacrifice their child, but in this case it was his son, his only son. And let me give you some background. When God first meets Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he is living in Ur of the Chaldees. It, it is a Sumerian city. It's very sophisticated, but it's a pagan city. There were false gods and goddesses there. God calls out Abraham at age 75, and he says, I want you to come and follow me. I want you to leave Ur. I want you to leave your family. I want you to go to a place, to a land that I'm going to take you. You don't even know where it is. I just want you to trust me. And Abraham, if you'll trust me and follow me, I'll make your name great. I'll make your descendants into a great nation. They'll be a blessing to the rest of the world. You'll be a blessing to the rest of the world. I'll protect you wherever you go, and I'll make your name great. And so that's the promise that Abraham, as a man 75 years old, takes God up on. Abraham is married to a woman named Sarah. Abraham is 75 years old at the time. Sarah is very close to that age. She's 74. They are childless. Now part of this promise is that God's going to make Abraham into a great nation. Therefore, descendants or children were a necessary part of this. You follow the story in Genesis 15. It's 10 years later. Abraham and Sarah are now, they've left Ur of the Chaldees for 10 years. They're journeying, wandering around, living in tents in Canaan. By the way, I should have told you, Abraham was very wealthy in Ur of the Chaldees. Now he's wandering around in tents. 10 years later, there's still no child. Sarah is barren. God had promised descendants, still no child. God takes Abraham one night and he says, go look at the stars, Abraham. And he says, if you can count the stars, that's how many descendants will come from you. And the scripture says in Genesis 15, 6, it says, Abraham trusted in the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's carried on in the New Testament to everyone that puts our trust now in Christ. 
God credits us as right in His sight. We're aligned again with God. But 10 years, no child. The story goes on. It's now 25 years later. Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 99. It's in Genesis 18. The Lord physically visits Abraham again. And he tells him, he says, Sarah, this time next year, you're going to have a child. She thinks it's so ridiculous because she's been barren all these years and now she's completely past menopause. She laughs and the Lord confronts her about the laughter and she tries to deny it. Abraham, the scripture says, is 100 and it says he's also past the physical point of reproducing. And yet the Lord says, this time next year, I'll come back and you'll have a son. Sure enough, just as God said in Genesis chapter 21, you find that after the period of time, the nine months, they have this son called Isaac. Isaac, he's the key. The, everything rests on Isaac. The promise of God to make Abraham a great nation that would be a blessing to the whole world, it all rests on Isaac, this son of promise, this miracle son that God had brought forth through the physical bodies of both Sarah and Abraham who were past their time. But now when we come to Genesis 22, we don't know exactly how much time has gone by, but we can do a little detective work and we can surmise. Isaac, because he could carry such a huge load of lumber, it would have been a huge load needed for the sacrifice, sacrificial altar, he carries it up a mountainside. You don't do that if you're a little kid. You're likely not even be able to pull that off if you're a teenager. Therefore, it is highly likely that Isaac was perhaps 20, 25 years old at this point, which means Abraham is 120 to 125 years old. He actually lives to be 175 years old, but it means that Abraham has now walked with God, as I said earlier in the message, for 40 to 50 years. But here's Isaac, this probably very strong young man who could have resisted his father easily, but did not. And that's the context for this. Now, what's going through Abraham's mind? The promise of God, it's all dependent upon Isaac. If Isaac is sacrificed, what happened to God's promise that he gave to Abraham 40, 50 years ago? What does it all mean? What, what kind of a God is this God that Abraham had become so convinced he could trust? Can you see how this might have been Abraham's secret dread? Listen, think about this from a standpoint of a human vantage point. Abraham and Sarah could not conceive. They were 75 and 74 when God first meets them. Barren. They probably wanted a son all of their life. God promises them a son. Ten years goes by, and then 25 years goes by, still no son. Now the son comes. The joy, the delight of their life. Do you suppose they were doting parents to have this miracle child? And then the horrible day comes when God says, I want you to take that son, that son that you love, your only son. Some of you know the scripture knows that he had another son named Ishmael, but that was from a handmaiden, and God never counted that as the, the, the legitimate son for he and Sarah. And so he's asked to sacrifice the son. Now, how confusing must this have been to Abraham? Because he knew the God that he had followed for 40, 50 years was nothing like the pagan gods that required human sacrifice. Yet suddenly this shift, and you could see how this could be the secret dread of Abraham's soul, to lose the son that he always wanted, the son that he finally had, to have to sacrifice him. That's perhaps the setup for the secret dread. But now let's get real personal about you and I. How can you and I recognize 
whether or not we have a secret dread. The secret dread is that thing that we say, I don't want God to ever talk to me about this. I don't want Him to ever mention it. I hope He never requires me to deal with this or change this in any way. I hope He certainly never asks me to sacrifice this. The secret dread is something that you and I may not even be conscious of because sometimes we are so afraid that by just letting it go through our minds, it might trigger God demanding it of us or God requiring it of us or God coming to us and saying you must change the way you uh, interact with whatever it is. So we suppress the thought of the secret dread and that's why it's called the secret dread. Now the way that we can discover whether or not we have a secret dread in ourselves is sometimes we have to do a little searching in our history, just kind of like what we just did with Abraham. It might be that you and I need to go back to our developmental experiences. It could be that when we were young and growing up, we experienced some unique pleasures, and so we developed an attachment to something so strong that we feel like we could never live unless we had that. And the thought of having to get rid of it or modify our interaction with it is the secret dread. Could be we experienced some deprivation, some pain of some sort. And that pain, that deprivation made such a brand on us that we now feel like, I never ever want to experience that again, that feeling again, that humiliation again, that deprivation again, that feeling of disconnect or being unloved or, or whatever it might be. And so that becomes our secret dread. And so we find ways to protect ourselves from whatever that experience might be. Another way that we can experience or find out for ourselves what our secret dread is, is to try to examine some of the discoveries we made in life. You see, as we go through life and we develop, we start experimenting. We try to figure out how can I avoid pain and bring the most pleasant pleasantness to my life? You know, how can I prosper and not fail? So we start experimenting with things and we discover certain things, whether they're trustworthy or not is questionable, but certain things for whatever reason make us feel significant, make us feel powerful, make us feel better about ourselves, make us feel in control. So we may develop secret attachments to these things. We may learn that other things make us feel secure. They may not be trustworthy, but they may make us feel secure. It could be money, could be power, could be popularity, whatever it is. We might come to feel that certain things satisfy us. Now, they may not be trustworthy or good for us, but they satisfy our desires at least momentarily. So, we cling to them. We build attachments to them. They become habits. They become part of our souls. They become part of our lifestyle. And they become those hands-off non-negotiables. They become the secret dread. We so dread the thought that God might ever ask us to deal with those items. They could be persons, places, or things, like I said. Now here's the interesting thing about Abraham's story. He was the stereotypical setup for the secret dread. You could see how he and Sarah would care so much about this son that that would be the secret dread when God said, sacrifice the son, the only son. By the way, just a point, how many of you know that Sarah never ever let Isaac go anywhere alone with Abraham once again? Could you imagine the conversation? Hey, me and the boy are going to go out hunting for a few days. You're not going anywhere with him, you, you crazy old coot. I'll never let him alone with you again. At any rate, he looked to be the perfect case of the secret dread that God was now going to have Abraham deal with it. And here's, here's the thing, folks. It, it's God in His love that wants to relieve us from the secret dread because here's the thing about the secret dread. 
It is a lingering irritant in our souls. It creates barriers between ourselves and God. It cuts off part of our souls from experiencing the fullness of God's love, the fullness of His trustworthiness. It keeps us from experiencing the peace of God that God wants us to experience to the degree that He wants us to experience it. It keeps us from experiencing the joy of God that God wants us to experience. The secret dread, it is this secret hidden discomfort, an irritant in the soul that makes us always a little less comfortable with God than He wants us to be and that we were designed to be. Now Abraham looked like the stereotypical model of the secret dread, but here's the wild truth. He was not at all, not at all. Because let me read you something from the book of Hebrews about this very episode in Abraham's life. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 through 19 in the NIV version. It says, by faith or by trust, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now listen to this, verse 19. Abraham reasoned. Picture this, folks. When he was heading up that mountain, when he raised that knife in his hand, this is what was going through his mind. The Spirit of God tells us. Hebrews 11, verse 19. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son, his only son, the apple of his eye, because he so trusted God. He so knew God. There was nothing that could shake his trust, his faith in God. There was no secret dread in the soul of Abraham. After 40 to 50 years of walking with God, he knew that he could trust God entirely. He knew he could sacrifice anything into the hands of God and that it would be safer in God's hands than it would ever be in his own. He didn't have a secret dread, but the likelihood is that some of us, we may still have a secret dread. We still have that air we say, uh-uh, that's non-negotiable. Don't ever even talk to me about that, God. Don't ever even mention that to me. That's off, off bounds or out of bounds for even you. And as long as we have the secret dread, as long as we have a boundary, as long as we have a non-negotiable place, there is an irritant in our soul. It will create a, ba a barrier between ourselves and God. We will never know the intimacy with Christ that God intends for human beings to experience. We will always have a little bit of a decrease in the amount of peace of God, the peace of God and joy of God that we can experience. And so God wants to, He must, for His own love's sake, try to remove from you and I the secret dread. And that's what I want to turn to next is removal of the secret dread in our souls. Because there are certain steps, folks, that I have to be willing to take and you have to be willing to take if the secret dread would ever be removed from our lives, that irritant in our soul, that barrier between ourselves and God, that last little bit that keeps us from experiencing the fullness of Christ, the intimacy Him that we probably even want but can't quite ever get to, that, that desire of that fullness of His peace and His joy. The first problem is this, it's owning it, it's owning something. If, if Abraham owned Isaac, he would never be able to offer Isaac. As long as I own something, I'm not going to experience the fullness of God in my life. 
I've got to be willing to offer something. Until I offer it, I own it. And when I own it, I'm not going to have the relief from the secret dread that God wants me to have. Let me read you a verse from Romans chapter 12, verse 1. This is the GNT version, Good News Translation. It says, So then, my friends, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to His service and pleasing to Him. This is the true worship that you should offer. Until, or excuse me, as long as I own it, it sort of owns me and becomes the secret dread. I've got to offer it back to God. What is on that treasure list of yours, on that treasure list of mine? What is on that hands-off list of yours, that hands-off list of mine? What's on that non-negotiable, even to you, God? You don't even talk to me about this area or this person or this place or this thing. What's on that list that I am unwilling to offer to God until I offer it to God, until I relinquish my ownership of it, it's going to stay the secret dread in my soul. It's going to continue to be the irritant. It's going to continue to be the barrier, the final barrier perhaps, between the intimacy with Christ that my soul actually longs for and the fullness of His life in me that I want to experience. I've got to be willing to relinquish ownership. The next thing I've got to be willing to do is I've got to become one that oversees something instead of owns something. Let me read you a verse from 1 Chronicles. This is David talking toward the end of his life. He's talking about a great offering that he was bringing for the creation of the temple of God. He says in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, Yet my people and I cannot really give you anything. The you is the Lord there. He says, God, me and my people, we, we can't really give you anything. Why is that, David? Because everything is a gift from you. And we have only given back what is yours already. You see, the truth of the matter is, the Scripture says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The cattle on a thousand hill belong to Him. All souls, says God in Ezekiel 18, all souls are mine. Everything belongs to God already. As long as I cling to something, insist on my ownership of it, it could become the secret dread. But when I relinquish my ownership of it, and I become an overseer of it instead of an owner, if I'm willing to shift from being owner to overseer, then God can help remove the secret dread from my soul and the, and the floodgates of God's blessing and grace and intimacy with Christ. They open up wide. Let me read you what God's intention is for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, the New Living Translation. It says, Now a person who is put in charge as a manager, the word there, manager, trustee, steward. Now, a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. You see, folks, in this life, in this life, we are not meant to function as owners. We are not owners of our families. We are not owners of our friends. We are not owners of the next breath of our life and the next heartbeat. We are not owners of our houses or, or our money or anything. What we are meant to be is managers. God owns it all in this life. Now, He promises us that in the age to come, in the new dimension, the new heaven and the new earth, we will finally be given things that are truly our own. But in this life, we are to learn to be managers of what belongs to God. And I can't manage what belongs to God unless I acknowledge His ownership. Ownership even over that non-negotiable, what is it to you? What, what is it? Is it maybe a person? And you say, you know, God, don't, don't ever even talk to me 
about that person. Don't ever ask me to accept a certain set of circumstances when it comes to that person. Don't even talk to me about that thing or that experience or that practice. You know I, I've got to have this. I must have this. I, I can't live with that. In fact, these are some good questions to ask ourselves as we try to surface what our secret dread might be. What is it that we've always had to have? If we go back in our history, have we always had to have a certain thing, a certain set of relationships, a, a certain financial base? What is it I've always had to have? What is it that I just can't live without? What is it that I say today? I just can't live. My life wouldn't be worth living if I didn't have that. That's the area of our secret dread. And God will more than likely sooner or later ask us to sacrifice it. Now Abraham had long ago passed this. When God came to him, he had already had an entire trust in God. And giving Isaac who God had given to him, God or Abraham knew that God would only do good, that God was completely trustworthy, that anything we put into the hands of God, it's the safest place for our treasure. In fact, I want to read you something that I wrote down. Our treasures are safest when we trust them into the hands of the Lord. Let me read it again. Our treasures are safest when we trust them into the hands of the Lord. And that means, that means people in our life. That means experiences in our life. That means everything in our life. It's, it's never safer. Our treasure, whatever it is, persons, place, or things, they're never better off than when we sacrifice them to the Lord. One of the things that God was trying to establish here, in fact, this test, this trial, it was not primarily for Abraham. God knew Abraham's heart was already wide open to God, that God had completely won Abraham's trust. This experience, this trial in Abraham's life was for me. It was for you. It was for every generation since. It was to prove that God is totally trustworthy even with that which we cherish the most. That He is not like the pagan gods that, that have no sensitivity to what matters to us. That He would ever just meaninglessly uh, destroy something or someone for His own ego needs. He's not that kind of being. This displayed it for, not for Abraham, Abraham already trusted God, but displayed it for us. Now, now here's the thing that I know is so common. I know that it is so common for we as human beings to have those places still in our life where we have the secret dread, where it's hands off for God, where we dread the thought that God will ever come to us and require us to deal with something, require us to sacrifice something, require us to make a change about a certain something or someone. I also know that resistant though we try, many times the Spirit of God is probably given us that push that we need to deal with it, we need to change it, we need to maybe sacrifice it altogether. Will you do what Abraham did today? Will you take that special treasure that you have never wanted to have to even consider a set of changed circumstance with, and will you put it into the hands where it belongs ultimately anyway, the hands of the one that is the real owner, it's never going to be safer. You're never going to be better off. It's never going to be better off than it will be that when we let God handle it the way He wants it to be handled. The secret dread can instantly be taken away from your soul, my soul, when we simply relinquish what already belongs to God and find the truth, the wonderful truth, that He is completely trustworthy, even with that which we love the most, even with that which we feel we need the most, even with that which we feel is become a very part of our own soul. We can trust God with that. He loves us 
more than we could ever love ourselves. He knows what's best for us. He wants what's best for us. He's the one that'll never leave us and never forsake us. And anything that we give up in this life, he knows it's just for the ultimate good that we have a hard time seeing the big picture of. I want to close with a couple thoughts. We do something in our church, and a lot of churches do it. We call them child dedications. And a child dedication is kind of like this. Parents come, and they bring their babies, or they bring their young children, and they stand on stage, and what they're doing is they're making a promise to God that they're going to raise that child in a way that the child is exposed to the truth about God and the truth about life in hopes that the child will come to early, put their trust in Christ, and become his follower. But they're, they're also pledging more. They're pledging that they are giving that child into the hands of God so that God can do with that child's life whatever God wants to do. Now, it's a big promise, and sometimes as life goes on, parents change. Let me share a true story with you that I came across. There was a couple, church-going couple, as far as I know, Christ-following couple, but they made an appointment with their pastor, the pastor of their church. They went in, they sat down with the pastor, they said, Pastor, we have a problem. You know our daughter, you know her very well, she's been in your church all these years. Well, she's now getting ready to go off to college and choose a career. And she came to us recently and she said she wants to go into full-time ministry. She, she wants to be a missionary. And we, we just do not want that for her. She's a brilliant child. She's so gifted. There's so many things she could do. There's literally nothing she can't do. We don't want this for her. Pastor, will you please... Will you please talk to our daughter and convince her not to do this with her life, not to throw her life away in the mission field, in the ministry? It's an easy thing to theoretically say we're going to dedicate our children or to dedicate our lives or to dedicate our finances or to dedicate our time and our talents. It's one thing theoretically to say that. It is a whole different thing when God finally comes and He says, you know, I, I, want you to, I want you to deal with that. I want you to sacrifice that. I want you to handle that the way I, I created to be handled. I want you to come to grips with, that's mine. And, I, and you're called to manage it, but you're not called to own it in this life. It's easy theoretically to say, I surrender my all, and even sing about surrendering our all in songs. It's very different than when we actually have to do it. If you know today the Spirit of God has tapped you, has spoken to you, there's something that He's saying, I want you to do what Abraham did. I want you to sacrifice that which is so dear to you, so precious to you, that you've even said hands off to God. It's been your secret dread that you've suppressed. You've never even let it flash through your mind because you so dreaded the thought that God would ever say, I want you to handle that differently. I want you to maybe get rid of that. I want you to sacrifice that. And today, God wants to relieve you, to relieve you, to take off your hands that secret dread that is a barrier between you and Christ. It has kept you from having the most intimate relationship with Him that you probably wanted and never understood why you still felt this area of discomfort. It's that thing that's deprived you of experiencing the fullness of His peace and His joy. And this day, he's asking, will you, will you let go of the secret dread? And will you enter into the fullness of life that can only be had when there is not one single pocket 
of distrust left in your soul with God. That God can require anything of you, any time of you, and you will know that God is too wise. Listen to this as I close that. That God is always too wise to make a mistake, and He is too good to do evil. When you have that confidence, like Abraham had that confidence, when I have that confidence, there will be no irritant left in our soul. The windows of our soul will be wide open to experience the fullness of Christ. And when we experience the fullness of Christ, others who interact with us will experience that undiluted fullness as well. And that, my, my friends, that, that is life in abundance. That is life at its fullness. Will you pray with me in closing? Father, you know how scared we can be, even of you. Please forgive us that that looming suspicion that Satan planted in our hearts in the Garden of Eden so long ago, that that looming suspicion that we can't trust you entirely, that, that somehow you're not completely unselfishly devoted to us, may the Spirit of God remove every vestige of that from our hearts today, and may we become those that live our lives as living sacrifices, not owners of anything, but managers of all that is yours. And may it bring honor to you, may it bring blessing to others, and we know, we know it'll bring the highest blessing to ourselves. Thank you, Father, for revealing your trustworthiness supremely and forever and completely in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the true sacrifice. He's the Son that was sacrificed to show the goodness of your heart to us forever and ever and ever. May that seal it in our hearts this day, I ask in His blessed, beautiful name. Amen.